Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Conflicts like the Russian war in Ukraine produce a horde of fake experts, confidently lecturing us about tactics, psychology, history, geopolitics, which town is strategic, who's in the inner circle. And they talk of grand ideological battles between good and evil, freedom and dictatorship, democracy and autocracy. We're flooded with images and information and emerge from it more ignorant. Behind it all, a unanimous chorus calling for escalation, led by the media. The voice of the rare, actual expert is drowned out by this cacophony of braying and bloviating frauds. Thus, it's a pleasure and honor to discuss the terrible events of the last month with Anatole Levin, a senior fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who spent decades reporting on the former Soviet Union, wrote the book Ukraine and Russia, A Fraternal Rivalry, covered Russia's war in Chechnya from both sides, and warned of the war that is now upon us. Anatole, welcome. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm so glad to have you on because you have some real expertise. I mean, we always hear, you know, on TV, there's all these experts and pundits, but you actually can speak from a a real place of expertise. So I guess a good place to start is, you know, this seems like in so many ways, a chronicle of a war foretold. And you warned that Russia might be pushed into doing this, uh, as did American experts and officials since the 90s. So was Russia's invasion a surprise to you? And what do you think caused it? It wasn't a, a, a surprise to me, no, because, uh, you know, Russia had been accumulating these troops since November and clearly threatening to invade. Uh, but um, like the vast majority of experts, and of, including Russian experts, uh, I thought it would be a much more limited operation. I didn't think that they would try to capture Kiev, partly because I, I didn't believe that their intelligence could be so extremely poor, as it turned out to be, you know, because they totally underestimated um, the strength of the Ukrainian resistance. And after all, you know, I mean, if there's one place that the Russian (laughs) intelligence services should know about, it's Ukraine, right? Um, So I think it really, you know, emphasized the, the degree to which Putin had cut himself off from advice from intelligence, really from, you know, well, we we know that from the Bush administration before the Iraq war, right? You know, administrations that have made their their mind up to do something simply filter out any information that doesn't accord with their prejudices. But, um, yeah, I wasn't surprised by the invasion. Um, Incidentally, another person rather more senior than me who clearly wasn't surprised by the invasion was Bill Burns, the head of the CIA, because he is one of those US diplomats, first policy planning in the 90s and then ambassador to Moscow, uh, who warned um, successive American administrations repeatedly that Ukrainian NATO membership was an absolute Russian red line that would lead to to deep crisis and possibly war. Uh, But... um, yeah, I mean, I think also like many people, and, and this, of course, does come from the, the, the initial underestimation of the Ukrainians, uh, but I've been struck by the degree of just sheer military incompetence with which Russia has waged this war. And um, I think that also does go back to, you know, what, what has become the nature of the Putin regime. Uh, you know, the, much, much narrower, much, much more closed 
especially since since COVID, it, it seems that Putin really only relies on a group of perhaps half a dozen people. Yeah, I've heard this uh, from even people inside Russia as well, right, that it's like your inner circle becomes smaller and smaller and you're increasingly surrounded by people who will just say yes, like yes men, who will say yes to everything that you say. And we do, I mean, we do hear in the the sort of prevailing thought, and particularly in the Western I- analysis, is that Russia is losing very, very badly. I mean, it was interesting because at first U.S. intelligence even predicted that Russia would take Kiev in 72 hours. And now it's several weeks into it. So it is interesting. I think everyone on all sides is incredibly surprised by basically Russia's inability so far to take Ukraine. Um, But at the same time, you know, when we go back just a few months, if we hear a lot from American and British officials now saying that they never intended for Ukraine to join NATO, but then they wouldn't say it back then. If, if American and British, and they were warning, they've been warning that this invasion was going to happen, right, for months and months and months. So if they thought this was invasion, this invasion was going to happen, and you had so many American officials, including, you know, years ago, like you mentioned, Will Burns, but also Joe Biden, um, also others, you know, in the past and even present, saying if, you know, Ukraine, it's like the red line. Why does it seem as though the U.S. and the British did so little to prevent this? It, I mean, maybe I'm wrong to think that, but it seems like they didn't do very much to prevent it other than saying it was going to happen. Well, the, the British didn't do anything because the British will never do anything that America doesn't allow them to do. I mean, you can discount you know, any serious role for London in all this. Um, as far as America is concerned, I think the answer is cowardice. Um, you know, you see it in my own world. Uh, I have got very sick of being told by you know colleagues in uh, among Russian experts that you know, of course, uh, everybody knew that Ukraine would not get into NATO, and a, a, a treaty of neutrality was almost practically really you know on offer. And I have to reply, you know, I was one of the, the few people who actually came out in public and advocated it. Most of the experts didn't, because of course it would have made them a little bit unpopular. Um, in in the Washington establishment. Uh, But I think that's true of the Biden administration as well. Um, Given, you know, the the intensely polarized nature and and totally uh, American politics and totally cynical nature of the opposition. By the way, the Democrats, when in opposition, are just as bad. Um, Mm -hmm. the, The Republicans would immediately have accused Biden of cowardice, of weakness, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the Biden administration was not prepared to take that domestic risk, uh, even though, uh, yes, I mean, if uh, if a treaty of neutrality had been offered before the war, it wouldn't have met all Russia's demands. But I think it would have, you know, met enough of them uh, to, to, to have um, prevented this war. Yeah, it's incredible if it, all it took was just saying Ukraine, literally, like the president of France, and all of these American officials now and pundits are saying, oh, yeah, like Ukraine, I don't know why Russia's being paranoid. Ukraine was never going to be a part of NATO. Like, why not just say that several months ago? And yeah, I guess cowardice would be one big part of it. But then from the Russian side of things, and I mean, we can only speculate, obviously, but why not just take Donbass? Why invade the entire country where much of the population is hostile towards Russia, particularly post-2014, and where you know the West has been preparing an insurgency. There's been reports about that for years. Surely the Russians knew about that. Mm. Well, uh, 
first of all, I, I think perhaps it's unfair to expect Russia to be less paranoid than the United States. Um, and uh, I don't know if you've been following, uh, China is is trying to develop a port in uh, Central Africa, which could conceivably, although at present it's only a commercial port, at some point become a military port. And you've got all these pieces about America saying that China cannot be allowed to develop a base on the Atlantic Ocean because the Atlantic Ocean is America's backyard. Um, uh, you know, this is this is a threat to vital American interests. You know, we, we all know that the slightest appearance of another great power in Central America drives the Americans crazy and they will, you know, adopt the most ruthless methods to prevent yeah. this. So, you know, the Russian establishment is, is just as paranoid. And I think... Um, what so yeah i mean they they exaggerate the threat of nato but i think as well what they were hoping to do was by getting a, a treaty of neutrality um to sort of show the ukrainians uh, that they had no chance of getting into nato they had no chance of getting into the european union therefore why not make a reasonable deal you know with russia a compromise with russia uh, of course um now the Russians have probably at some stage in a peace settlement got a treaty of neutrality. But from every other point of view, of course, they've they've lost Ukraine. Um, they get to keep Crimea, undoubtedly, and probably most of the Donbass. Uh, but, you know, because of what they've done, uh, Ukraine, e even if you know it's not in NATO, will move towards the West and will have much more support from the West to do so. So Russia has, in, in a way, I mean, Russia, you know, if it goes on grinding away, it will take more territory. But I do think that politically speaking, Russia has already lost this war. So you and others have said that the U.S. never had any intent, intention, excuse me, um, never had any intention of defending Ukraine. And it's obvious NATO, at least for now, will not take serious risks to defend Ukraine from this invasion. So if everybody, you know, we already talked about everybody knew Ukraine wasn't going to join NATO and NATO countries basically said as much. Um, why do you think, you know, and I know you mentioned the paranoia, but why do you think the, I just want to elaborate on this a little bit. Why do you think the Russians were so worried? Is it because as the Russians claim NATO was placing weapons in Ukraine that targeted Russia and had essentially turned Ukraine into kind of like an unofficial member of NATO? Or do you think those concerns were exaggerated? Because when you do look at the military infrastructure, for example, of Ukraine, whether it was a member of NATO or not, it was seemingly being integrated with NATO. There were NATO military exercises taking place in Ukraine. There was a lot of training taking place. So yeah, I guess, was that an exaggerated concern? Or was that a fair concern for Russia to have? Well, it was an exaggeration of the truth, if you like. I mean, uh, you know, you um, not a threat to Russia, but certainly, you know, the training and equipment of Ukrainian forces where, um, you know, what was preparing them possibly for an, uh, an operation to attack, to attack and retake the Donbass, for example, and then, you know, basically to storm the Donbass and then force face Russia with a fait accompli. Um, the other issue is that, uh, and, you know, once again, this is the kind of thing that the, the West really should have told the Ukrainians not to engage in. But, you know, for two years before the war, Ukraine has been blockading the water supply to Crimea. Um, now, look, 
you could say legally, fair enough, Russia illegally annexed Crimea. Uh, but the point is it was doing tremendous damage to the Crimean economy and society. And, um, you know, you, you, you don't, you know, unless you are actually prepared for war, it is unwise to provoke a much stronger opponent in this way. Um, that's one reason why Russia is insisting on recognition of Crimea as part of a peace agreement, uh, in order that Ukraine should not be able to impose that kind of blockade again. I mean, that there are there are ways around that, but I mean, certainly any peace settlement ha has to exclude, of course, future Russian military pressure on Ukraine, but it also has to exclude, you know, Ukrainian attempts to to force the return of these territories. And then, you know, I, uh, I promise this will come back to Ukraine, but in the Syrian civil war, there was weapons and support that kept being supplied to Syrian insurgents, even when it became clear that the government of Syria was going to survive, uh, especially after the Russian intervention on behalf of the Syrian government. And it seemed that the goal of this was to just simply make it more costly for Damascus and at that point, Moscow, and to punish them for I guess, winning the war, if we can call it winning. So to bring it back to Ukraine, now the West is flooding Ukraine with a pretty insane amount of weapons and, you know, of course, punishing Russia with unprecedented sanctions. Yet there doesn't seem to be a Western rush to halt the war. So is this a similar scenario where the war is being prolonged and Ukrainians are being encouraged to basically die simply to weaken Russia and punish it? Well, there is, I mean, there is that element. Uh, certainly, I mean, you read it openly, hardliners in Washington and also in certain parts of Europe. But I think, you know, it's a mixture of things because that goes together with, on the other hand, you know, obviously genuine and justified outrage at what Russia has done at the invasion and a desire to help the Ukrainians. But this combination of... Um, you know, on the one hand, pretty ruthless, cynical, geopolitical ambitions, you know, on the part of America and certain allies, <laughs> then with, you know, moral fervor, uh, which may be justified, but as, you know, people have said, is not necessarily the best guide to policy. I mean, yes, that, that risks, you know, essentially putting Western policy on autopilot. Um, and, uh, yeah, prolonging the war and uh, ignoring or even blocking, you know, uh, possibilities of a of, of a peace settlement. Of course, uh, the the damage is not, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the, the greatest the greatest damage is to Ukraine, um, and obviously to Russia from sanctions. But as as I'm sure you know very well, I mean, the the wider repercussions of the war and sanctions uh, on food prices, for example, mm -hmm. in many parts of the world because of the effect on uh, wheat wheat exports and the international price of, of wheat, risks being very severe indeed. Um, you know, there are, there are warnings of uh, first a European recession, then a, then a global recession. Um, so, the the you know the the risks of this this war go far far beyond Ukraine, um, which is another reason, in my view, why you know we we should really try to push for a a peace settlement, uh, you know, with on terms that will guarantee Ukrainian sovereignty, uh, if you know if that seems possible, which I, I think it is um, becoming possible because clearly, I mean. Russia is being gradually fought to a standstill and is suffering 
huge losses uh, of men. So, mm. and actually, I mean, you see, well, you know, Russia has set, set out its terms, um, the, which are, I think, basically the terms that will will have to be agreed in the end. Of course, there are many details that will have to be worked out and guarantees for Ukraine. But it seems to me that, you know, we do have a, a viable peace settlement now on, on the table or the basis for it, and that it's the settlement that, you know, we could get today or we could get in 10 years' time, and the only difference is how many people have died, you know, in the meantime. It's got it. So there's such a parallel to Syria there, um, which a lot and a lot of the same voices, by the way, that like their policies, they're advocating we must continue fighting as opposed to finding a way to like decrease the amount of people who are going to die. Because, right, you're right. The, the outcome is ultimately going to be the same at the end, regardless of how many people die. Um, you, you know, I. I I wanted to move to the issue of Putin for a moment because some have tried to psychoanalyze Putin and kind of return to the Kremlinology of the Cold War. Um, and they've said that, you know, he's gone completely crazy. Uh, but, you know, in the past, he has, you know, been pretty, I think at least, seemingly calculated and cautious in pursuit of what he sees as, you know, his or, or Russia's interest, regardless of whether or not we agree with with him or them, um, other than, like I mentioned, other Russian dissidents, I, I, who you know, with whom I've spoken to, have said that from their vantage point, this is a power move intended to cement his grip on power inside Russia at a time when there's growing dissent. You know, I don't know if that's like maybe optimistic from a dissident point of view, um, but how do you explain Putin's motives? And, you know, what do you think, I know it's hard because we don't have like real polling we can look to right now, but do you have an idea of how much support there is for him for this war at the moment? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Putin's a great power nationalist and for, you know, for, for Russia to be a great power in the world, um, it needs to have Ukraine uh, as an ally or a neutral state. Um, and, um, you know, there are, uh, uh, and then Putin has become, I, I noticed that when I went to a conference uh, where he appeared back in October, uh, it could be that age is beginning to play a part. He, he was clearly more much more concerned with Russian history, um, with Russian and Ukrainian history, perhaps with his own historical role, you know, as he gets older, maybe even beginning to think of stepping down and wanted to go out with a great, you know, victory. Uh, it seems to me that that is the, the, the basic reason, because if, um, if it were simply about his domestic popularity, uh, yes, okay, he's got a, a boost, from this war. Uh, but even if he didn't expect economic sanctions to be as severe as they have been, you know, I, I, I talk to people in, in, in the Russian elites, they, they knew that if there was an invasion of Ukraine, there would be severe sanctions, and that this would, you know, affect Russia badly. Uh, and I think that, you know, in the longer term, um, not that, you know, masses of people will come out, you know, uh, for surrender in Ukraine, as Russians would see it, or, you know, or in favor of the West. But, you know, if their living standards plummet, if they lose their jobs in large numbers, if inflation surges, well, then, you know, that adds to a, a very widespread d degree of anger among ordinary people at, at corruption 
in Russia, you know, the corruption of the Putin regime and all the sort of petty oppressions and corruptions of Russian life. Uh, and I think um, with time, you know, therefore the regime might be in serious trouble. Uh, at the moment, um, he certainly had a surge in, in popularity as a result of the war. Uh, of course, you know, this is also because of, you know, really, really intensive state propaganda. You know, the he's, he's established control over all the television channels now. Um, there is no, you know, public media dissent, except on the internet, where there's a lot. Um, of course, the the other thing here, you know, which one sees in so many societies, sees it in America, sees it in Britain, um, is what you could call the 70-30 divide in Russia. Only 30% of Russians have ever traveled outside Russia. Um, uh, and, you know, they are the ones who, of course, uh, are suffering themselves already from what's happened. Um, and are also much more aware uh, of the damage that this, you know, will do. To, to Russia, the Russian economy, Russia in the world. But of course, the 70% at the moment are more likely to think, oh, those, you know, those, those damned elites in, in Moscow and Petersburg, why should we care if they can't buy Prada handbags, you know, or go on holiday to Italy? Um, you know, so much the better, serve them right, you know. So um, I think there is an element there of class and region, which Putin has been has been able to uh, to exploit, but you, you know, I mean, if um, I mean the the other, of course, there are two things which I think he would have to worry about. One is obviously, you know, economic decline and living standards, but the other is quite interesting. Um, one reason it seems why the Russians simply deployed far too few troops for the operation that they planned. One, obviously, they underestimated the Ukrainians grossly, but it seems as well that the Russian government has tried as far as possible to use only professional, regular soldiers, volunteers mm. in, in, the, in the front ranks. And that would seem to indicate that they are, you know, really worried about the effects on Russian public opinion if large numbers of conscripts right. you know, come back dead. Uh, well, but at that point, I mean, if they go on suffering casualties at this rate, um, sooner or later they will have to call on conscripts uh, in large numbers, which seems to me another reason why... Um, perhaps you, you know the uh, the Kremlin you know is now genuinely interested in a, a peace settlement. Though, though, of course, only they they want one that they can present to the Russian people as some kind of victory. Right. No, I mean that makes perfect sense. Um, I'm wondering if we could shift for a moment to the issue of the role of the radical right in this conflict. I mean, I, we we of course know that Russia has supported some right wing movements in certain parts of Europe before this conflict. But we also know that since the coup in Ukraine and the ensuing civil war back in 2014, that started back in 2014, the Ukrainian extreme right has become the most organized and armed and influential of its kind in Europe. And the Russians, of course, have included denazification as one of their goals. And then, of course, Western media, uh, which had once, you know, shown a light um, on Ukrainian neo-Nazis, have now embraced all Ukrainians carrying weapons as defenders of freedom. And then, you know, of course, Russia has its own right-wing problem, but, you know, maybe I'm too scarred by, by the civil war in Syria, but it does remind me of the Western embrace of the Syrian insurgency and really apologizing for its extremists until it became impossible 
to deny that Al-Qaeda and ISIS were the dominant factions. And I'm not suggesting that like neo-Nazis are the dominant factions in Ukraine, but of course they are, there are elements on the, on the ground there that are fighting. So in your view, what is the role of the radical right or neo-Nazis, you know, the Azov battalion, the Banderites, uh, Ukrainian nationalists, whatever we want to call them, what is their role in the fighting today? And, and what are the risks in this? Well, I mean, in terms of electoral support, the, these groups are very weak. You know, the, the, the absolute maximum vote they got was uh, 2012 when they got 11 percent, more or less. Um, now it's it's way down, you know, in, in single figures. Uh, and so, you know, to, to say that Ukraine is is Nazi, you know, is, is, is obviously, I mean, rubbish it's it's right lying russian propaganda and, and you know of course one has to point out that um, president zelensky is a you know is a russian speaking jewish liberal uh, but i mean i think the point is though that uh, where the, uh, the these extreme rightist groups or their paramilitary wings of course have um achieve disproportionate power uh, is a on the streets you know because they are the archetypal street fighters you know so they can intimidate governments and other political parties uh, as they've done again and again with violent demonstrations but secondly uh, by the by fighting and fighting very hard i mean there's no doubt about their courage and commitment uh, for years now in the donbass uh, and now um in Mariupol, um, you know, the, Mariupol is the centre of the Azov regiment, um, and indeed they are fighting to the death there. And that, of course, gives them a disproportionate uh, potential influence, uh, you know, after the war. Um, you know, if, if you remember how after the First World War, you, you know, associations of ex-servicemen, you know, made up of former frontline troops and especially elite troops, played a disastrous role you know in in Europe in Italy in Germany and elsewhere i think this is something that we need to to worry about right and um i just want to say one thing about zelensky i don't know if it's still proper appropriate to well i don't know if it's appropriate to necessarily call him a liberal only because and maybe he i think some of this was obviously responding to those far right elements in the street because he did try in the beginning to be sort of like this peace person who wanted to bring the country together. But then he was banning opposition media even before the war and banning his opponents, in fact. So it's, I mean, I just, I just take a little bit of issue, I guess, with Ukraine. Mm. Not that there's any, it's not okay to invade a country or violate its sovereignty in any way. But the idea that Ukraine is sort of this bastion of like liberal democracy, mm -hmm. um, when it's just, I mean, it's actually, it has a lot in common with Russia in many ways in, in that respect, but I'll, I'll leave that there. Um, well, one thing which should be said is that uh, one area in which the Ukrainians were totally wrong, and the West was totally wrong not to criticize them for this, uh, was in their laws discriminating against the Russian language right. in, in Ukraine. And I mean, one big question for Ukraine after the war is um, precisely who will have the ascendancy. Um, the the extreme nationalists, you know, who want to continue that policy, uh, or you know, Zelensky has now suggested that actually these laws could be cancelled, if only, of course, because the Russian-speaking population of the East and South has dominant, uh, you know, has on the whole demonstrated its loyalty to Ukraine. So um, I'm very, you know, I mean, irrespective of Russia's demands, this is an offer that that Kiev should be making in any right. case. But such an offer would certainly be bitterly unpopular 
with Azov and the other, you know, extreme. Well, no, I think, I mean, I think that's, there's something to be said about Russia invading Ukraine actually causing, I think, this this issue with like anti-Russian sentiment and the problems with the far right to be even worse, actually making the problem worse. You already see it's making the, the, the country, whatever liberalism it might have had, less liberal. You have Zelensky now banning all of these uh, parties, calling them pro-Russia. I think one of them is like the second most popular party in Ukraine that got a big chunk of the vote. Uh, in the last election in parliament. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the the repercussions of this war are going to cause a threat to, I guess, Ukraine. it's going to cause a problem across Ukrainian society for a long time to come. But again, you know, not looking only at Syria, but also at, you know, Afghanistan or the former Yugoslavia, we have seen real dangers from flooding countries with weapons and fighters. And I assume that many of the weapons coming into Ukraine are probably not being used to target Russians right away, but are being stored away to be maybe sold on the black market at some point. That's what happens with this kind of situation. And, you know, how will, how will like, how after this is over, another threat is like, how will you demobilize these well-armed militias in a country that was already one of the most corrupted and like a mafia type system has dominated the country. And now we have thousands of men from Europe, from America, rushing in to volunteer and fight. It just, it just seems like a recipe for disaster and then like perhaps a long-term threat to the world. Like, what do you see as being the long-term repercussions of this, especially if it continues for mm -hmm. years to come, as we're hearing some people say? Well, I mean, this this is a really you know, vivid um, thing for me, but because I but I covered Afghanistan, you know, in the eighties, and one saw exactly this after the fall of the communists. You know, the mujahideen turned on each other. Um, but I also, as you mentioned, covered the Chechen war in the mid nineties, and. Uh, the, the a key reason for the subsequent catastrophe was precisely that there were all these brutalized, militarized, unemployed, heavily armed young men you know, left behind in a in a desolated economic landscape. So I suppose I mean part of the question is uh, after after this war is finished, whenever it is, you know, whether the Western Europe will really give solid support to reconstruction and development. In Ukraine, because it has to be said, you know, uh, up to the war, American economic aid to, to Ukraine was pathetic. I mean, pathetic. <laughs> um, you know, and the combination of that with all the language of you know Ukraine as a vital partner and so forth was contemptible, frankly. So we have to see whether you know this uh, European gener Western generosity continues after the war. And but yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the key question. I mean, will the war bring Ukrainians together? behind a really determined program of reform, anti-corruption, democratization, you know, civic nationalism for all Ukrainians, not just ethnic Ukrainians, uh, or will the, um, the hard men, and by the way, the, the Ukrainian extreme nationalists, uh, you know, do, do indeed have close links in several cases to, um, uh, to organized crime. Um, will they be, you know, the ones who will, will dominate? Uh, I, I, you know, one cannot say, I think all that one can say with some confidence is that the longer the war goes on, the more, almost by definition, likely it is that the, the hard men will, will gain in, in power uh, and, um, and prestige uh, because, you know, 
you do have to recognize as you know the defense of mariupol is showing that whatever else they are they are you know brave and committed fighters but then you know as you know too well from the middle east the bravest and committed fighters are not, are not the best democrats or you know the best people for the future of the country right no, typically not, of course. Like the, they're usually the most ideologically committed to some extreme form of this or that. Um, you know, the Russians have also, you mentioned uh, your coverage of Chechnya. The Russians have also dis dispatched Chechen fighters to Ukraine. And I'm curious, do you think that that's significant in any way? Why do you think they did this? Well, I, I think it is also because, once again, they're running short of professional troops and the Chechens are notoriously good fighters. But, uh, I mean, on the other hand, I mean, this seems to me, if it turns into a long war, a really dangerous move from Putin's point of view, uh, because... Um, the you know your ordinary russian soldier or junior officer you know doesn't much like chechens and seeing you know chechen troops possibly committing atrocities in U southern ukraine against people in southern eastern ukraine who mm. are actually in so many cases ethnic russians i mean that could have a disastrous effect on Russian military morale. And if those stories started filtering back into Russia, um, you know, e even people who now support the war might start saying, <laughs> you know, no, we can't, we can't stand for this. Yeah, it also seems to be in some way um, exacerbating the, or maybe exciting the, the sort of far right elements in Ukraine who are very, hmm. um, who are very happily, uh, you know, expressing, oh, we're gonna like, we're, we're going to like wrap these dead Chechen fighters in, in pig's skin so mm. that they don't go to heaven. So there's that element of it, too. It seems to be like giving the, I don't know, almost like red meat to those people as well. Well, um, and, and neo-Nazis in, in Western Europe as well, who are, who are right. beginning to volunteer for the Ukrainian cause. And yes, I mean, I mean, sometimes they're ex-soldiers you know, ex and adventurers and mercenaries, but um, some of them also do seem in their darkened minds to think this is part of the great battle against Islam. Right. Against Russia. <laughs> I mean, they do, they actually do though, that the right, the neo, the sort of not the neo-Nazi uh, uh, viewpoint on this is like Russians aren't even actually Slavic. They're like Mongols. They don't even, um, that's their descendants of Mongols. I think that's like the sort of rhetoric that I, that I see flying around yeah. from that crowd. But if we could go back in time for a bit, because this is never talked about in the prevailing narrative about this war. How responsible is the U.S. or maybe it's more appropriate to say U.S.-backed NGOs for the 2014 overthrow of the Ukrainian government? How much have has the U.S. been interfering in Ukraine since then? You know, Russia calls the Ukrainian government a puppet government. And then the U.S. and Western countries respond by denying any role in influencing or interfering in it, but we know that's not true given that the leaked Victoria Newland call uh, back in those days. But who's right here? Well, I think you know. I mean, the the uprising, the protests on the on the streets of Kiev began as genuinely popular protests, and you know, not not only from Ukraine extreme nationalists, but from you know much wider sections of youth. Um, and I think you know you have to recognise that, that that is because they rejected the idea of Ukraine joining the Russian-led Eurasian Union, uh, mm -hmm. and for very understandable reasons, you know, preferred 
to try to move you know towards the the European Union because for them you know the Eurasian Union you know they sort of tied it not altogether fairly but in their own minds with all, all the things that they disliked within Ukraine you know corruption misgovernment um backwardness authoritarianism um, so I think, you know, the, the impetus to try to move towards the West was a genuine one. Um, but uh, then, you know, to some extent, this was uh, taken over, at least in terms of street fighting, mm -hmm. by these extreme nationalist groups, you know, because they are the, the tough guys, you know, they, they are the... Uh, and they had been really preparing, uh, as their own leaders have, have said, they'd been preparing for this moment for many, many years. Um and then, I mean, how far uh, the, the, and I mean, you know, of course, Western NGOs were, I mean, openly uh, feeding and supplying the demonstrators. I mean, you know, I don't think they were directly supplying the extreme right, but so, you, you know, but they, they sort of supported the general movement. Um, towards the end, it's not clear uh, it, to what extent America orchestrated the uh, the, the final, you know, uh, armed overthrow of, of President Yanukovych, which, which of course overthrew also a deal which Russia, America, and the European Union had reached, perfectly good deal, which is um, Yanukovych, you know, remains temporarily in power, but you have early elections to decide mm -hmm. you know, what the mass of the Ukrainian people want. You do have to remember that you know that the the armed overthrow of, of Yanukovych destroyed this diplomatic agreement, which was also a, a, a democratic solution, and so and then um, whether America backed that overthrow is not clear. What is certainly true is that America accepted it, tried to orchestrate it subsequently, as you say, the famous telephone call by Newland, um, to, to, to make sure that, um, you know, that you got a, a pro-American government in, in place, uh, and um, did nothing at that stage to preserve democracy in, in Ukraine. So, you know, Russia has, has legitimate grounds for, for, um, for for complaint uh, yeah. about that yes yeah it's a uh, it's a uh it's interesting going forward too. I mean, obviously you can't say that the Zelensky government is like a coup government because they were actually elected to power. Uh, but at the same time, it's, you know, it, it's curious, like how much, it, how much is what the Ukrainian leadership says uh, based on what, you know, they're sort of, are they scheming with the Europeans or the Americans or what is the Americans saying to them or what's NATO saying to them that's making them feel you know, empowered or emboldened enough to like refuse, you know, to, to to refuse neutrality, at least in the past, or to like, you know, do these provocative things, like you said, blocking the water with Crimea. Um, it stands to be seen. I mean, maybe one day we'll have WikiLeaks cables showing us just how much, you know, people were talking to each other. But there are, of course, attempts to mediate this conflict made by what I think at least are unconventional players like China, Turkey, you know, we even saw an attempt by the Israelis. How serious do you think these efforts are? And you've written about this. So how do you think this conflict might end? Well, 
it's <laughs> i know this sounds must sound extremely odd to anyone in the middle east <laughs> uh, but it it does seem to me that the israelis probably have the best chance oh uh, really <laughs> well, simply you see, because they're they're trusted by all the three main players, mm. which are the Ukrainians, the Russians, and the Americans. Um, whereas the, the the Chinese and the Turks, um, even if they manage to, uh, you know, measure of success mediating between the Russians and the Ukrainians, would face intense hostility and suspicion in Washington, which I think would instinctively, you know, then try to spoil any agreement reached you know we we've seen that in the middle east as well right when when somebody tries to take a, a peace process out of the hands of the americans um so uh, um but i i think that pot potentially the the israelis could play a positive role if you know with with america's say so as to the 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 terms well the broad outline except in one case is is on the table already it's the the details you know which are the killers which have to be worked out um that is a treaty of neutrality zelensky has basically offered that um with uh guarantees for ukrainian security what that would consist of we're not quite sure but i mean well, one can imagine that, and and you know there would have to be reciprocal things about Ukraine once again not blockading Crimea, um, uh, uh, demilitarization. Russia has suggested, or Russian officials have suggested, that could simply mean certain categories of missiles, um, and no foreign military bases on Ukrainian soil. So that could be folded into neutrality, denazification. Um, uh, as originally <laughs> phrased, I mean, it, it, difficult to imagine the, Ukra you know, the Ukrainian government agreeing basically to launch a civil war against its own extremists. Uh, but yeah. perhaps um, if the Ukrainians, uh, as, by the way, you know, Zelensky is also, so, so much of this is about, you know, suggestions which are sometimes subsequently denied and then come out in a new form, uh, but that uh, Ukraine could uh, cancel these laws discriminating against the Russian language in Ukraine uh, in, in recent years. That might go far enough for that. Then there's the territorial issue. Um, mm. Now there, I mean, the Ukrainians are never going to get Crimea back. Um, you know, if this war goes on for 100 years, they still won't get Crimea back unless Russia actually completely collapses as a state. Um, so perhaps the way out, as various people, including myself, have suggested, uh, as by the way Navalny, the you know the Russian opposition leader, has suggested, is a second referendum under United Nations supervision to legitimise this. And then there's the Donbass. Now there, the problem is that you know Russia doesn't yet, even why they're trying to storm Mariupol, doesn't yet actually control all the territory that it claims for the separatist. Donbass right. republics, uh, though it will probably be able to conquer that in the next couple of weeks. Um, uh, difficult to imagine Ukraine giving up more territory than you know it held at the beginning of the war, but possibly. I mean, you know, if both sides really want to make peace, there, there are ways around this. One is that um, you could have a referendum in the Donbass on a district by district basis. In other words. Um, not the province's whole voting, uh, but every individual district within the province votes on whether it wants to be part of Ukraine or separate. Well, there one can well imagine that the line might run very close 
to the previous ceasefire line, since I don't imagine that Russian shells and bombs have gained many supporters for Russia in the places that they're attacking. Uh, nor, by the way, on the on the side of the separatist republics, you know, that this has been completely ignored by the Western media, but the Ukrainians have been, you know, intensively shelling across the border right. in, into those places. So they, I'm sure, will want to stay you know, with with Russia. I mean, alternatively, you know, Russia is, unlike Crimea, Russia has not annexed these areas. Uh, it's recognised their independence. So you could have, um, and if, if the will is there, uh, you, you could have these re uh, republics say, oh, we return to the, the Minsk process. We, we will try to negotiate a confederal arrangement, you know, power sharing uh, with Ukraine. Uh, I don't think that would lead to anything. But, you know, if the intention is to try to end the war and kick things into the diplomatic long grass, then that could be a way out. So I think, you know, um, there are actually uh, ways, you know, ways out of this conflict now, which would um, allow Putin to present it as a as a success and would not actually cost Ukraine anything in real terms, because whether it's NATO membership or rule over Crimea, it's it's lost, it's actually lost these already. Um, but of right. course, it, 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 politically, it's difficult for uh, Zelensky, you know, and there will be tremendous pushback by the Ukrainian extreme nationalists. That is why, of course, Zelensky needs the full support uh, of the United States um, and of Europe. Uh, in negotiating such a peace. And that is why, you know, these uh, uh, American hardliners who want to, you know, and they're talking about it quite openly, <laughs> to turn Ukraine into Afghanistan and to, to bleed, weaken and even destroy Russia um, are, are, so, um, are, are so appallingly dangerous because they, they, they could be in a position to block a, a peace settlement, but, you know, just by, by um, not, not helping Zelensky. Yeah, I mean, it really is just stunning to see how these people that claim to care about Ukraine so much are more than happy to watch it become just like, you know, uh, what I mean, whatever Afghanistan became, which is just this sort of like post-apocalyptic hellscape after mm -hmm. endless war because of a nonstop insurgency you continue to support. Um but just real quick to shift to the sort of damage to, to Russia and the rest of the world, you know, the sanctions imposed on Russia seem so severe um, in a way that the country is kind of being punished the way that Germany was punished after World War One. So what do you think will be the consequences for Russia of these sanctions? And then likewise, the consequences for Europe, which isn't really being talked about as much, but the consequences are there. And then, of course, the rest of the world, which you alluded to before, uh, the consequences of losing access to Russia. Well, I mean, the Russian economy is in itself pretty small. Uh, but, I mean, there are three points of vulnerability. Uh, one is international food prices, um, you know, uh, as part of wider inflation. Uh, in parts of the world and in the United States itself, you know, the, the US has seen, you know, pretty very high levels of inflation, historically speaking, in over the past year. So that's the first one, you know, and the risk of food crises in, in various parts of the world and political instability. The other is obviously energy um, 
prices. Uh, they haven't gone up as, as much as uh, people feared. That's partly because, of course, the, the, the Europeans have very carefully excluded gas from their right. sanctions because they depend on it. But obviously it's led to, to, to rises and volatility. Uh, and the third is, you know, international financial markets if Russia defaults. Um, and, you know, as, as has been pointed out, the, the seizure of Russia's international debt, um, you know, sent some really worrying signals to a number of countries, above all China, um, I, I would expect the Chinese um, to start, I mean, it will take them time, but really trying to, to, to um, uh, move out of, well, American bonds in particular, simply for, for fear that they will be seized in any future crisis. Now, that risks really considerable instability on world financial markets and a drop in confidence. Now, if you put those three things together, you know, in circumstances where due to COVID, you know, the international economy was already pretty shaky. I mean, that does look to me, you know, very, very dangerous. Um, and, uh, you know, one, one hopes that when Biden is in, in Europe um, later this week, that, you know, some of the calmer European leaders will, will try to, you know, bring this home to him. I mean, it could be that the, um, you know, CIA station chiefs in the Middle East are saying the same thing as well. Um, but just just at the moment, you know, between geopolitical ambition, um, what one has to call sheer hatred of Russia um, from a variety of sources, some of them legitimate, you know, in view of the war, uh, and then, you know, American... You know, the, well, the Amer the Europeans are just the same, but I mean, this some um, tremendous moralizing, which is, you know, look, it, it's it's quite legitimate as far as it goes, given the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but of course, as certain people are pointing out, when it comes to American behavior over the past um, 20 years, you know, kettles calling pots black is, you know, a mild way of describing present American attitudes. But if you put these three, you know, all of this together, you have a you have a very, very hysterical mood, you know, in in Washington especially at the moment. Yeah, it's quite frightening. And it's all this sort of like conformist group think where there's no space, probably for someone like you or your colleagues at Quincy to really have a voice on this issue. And then it's interesting, you know, I've, I'm, you know, talking to you from the Middle East, a part of the world that is very familiar with American policy and its uh, repercussions. I think it's interesting when you look around, you know, we talk about the international community and the international community condemning Russia. It's really just the US, Europe, Australia, Japan. You really can't say it's the world because a huge chunk of the world, Latin America, much of Asia, much of what we call the Middle East, um, much of all of that, like most, most of Africa are really abstaining from taking a side in this conflict. And I'm curious, this, you know, some, why, uh, this is an improvement on, on, on normal American behavior. Very often, according to America, the international community consists of America, Britain, <laughs> and the Marshall Islands. Oh, and Israel, well, of course. That's right, of course. In fact, in this time, Israel isn't a part of the international community. Um, <laughs> which the is international community is a very flexible concept as far as <laughs> Washington is concerned. Exactly, exactly. But it is interesting watching such, you know, big countries like, you know, India 
and Brazil, which are close allies of the U.S., you know, they don't want to condemn Russia. Um, countries of all across the ideological spectrum, it's not just Cuba and Venezuela, you know, and sort of like the typical uh, countries that are in Russia's uh, or that are allied with Russia. It's it's way more Saudi Arabia, the UAE. You know, these are client states of America. So why do you think so much of the world is abstaining from joining the West in isolating Russia? Well, I, I think partly um, it's, you know, it is this sense of double standards. Uh, you, you know, we, we you know, we, we just do not accept America's right to dictate to us, you know, what is moral and what is not, given America's record. But I think the point is also that uh, all of these countries are dedicated to their own national interests. And, you know, in in the case of India, um, Indians, however much, you know, they may want an, uh, an alliance with America or a partnership with America, have always, when speaking to me, been absolutely categorical that this is an alliance of equals. Uh, This is not an alliance in which America dictates to us, and this is an alliance in which we will always defend what we see as our national interests. In other words, you know, as um, uh, one senior Indian diplomat said to me, you know, we're not Denmark. Uh, You know, we are not simply going to obey American orders. He was kind enough not to say we're not Britain, uh, speaking (laughs) to a Brit. Um, You know, uh, and... um, and yeah, I mean, we, we want cooperation with uh, America when it's in our interest, but when it's not in our interest, no. And clearly, I mean, in the case of Russia, um, because of you know all, all the, the wider economic fears that I've uh, that I've expressed, um, they they you know do not think it is in their national interest to um, you know to to to, to condemn. Uh, Russia and to join in sanctions, and I, I think also, I mean, there is there is a very widespread feeling that it, it's not, you know, I think it's it's not that people want to support the Russian invasion or justify the invasion as such, uh, but I think you know, uh, unlike in the West, there is much more of a you know or, or, of a recognition that um, U.S. and Western actions did uh, you know contribute unnecessarily to the crisis that led to the war. I mean, certainly, uh, if anyone uh, attempted to ring India uh, with an alliance uh, of states bitterly hostile to India, uh, you would see very, very strong pushback by India. You know, even much more limited Chinese, you know, arrival in South Asia has produced a very, very strong Indian reaction. So, you know, they they have more of an understanding of, of, well, should we say, you know, geopolitical realities, I think, because, because frankly, a a much more toughly realist one and and a less... I mean, if one were unsympathetic, you could say it was less moral. Um, If you were more sympathetic, you'd simply say it was less hypocritical. Take your choice. Well, I also think, you know, there's like kind of fairy tales that that are told to that that we tell ourselves in the West about good and bad and, you know, democracy versus authoritarian and this kind of like worldwide struggle that when it comes down to it, just, you know, when you it's there is much more of a realistic perspective from countries that are outside of that bubble. I agree. And I also wonder, too, if, you know, if you look at the past few years, I mean, if you're an ally of America, a very close one, 
and you're watching Afghanistan where the U.S. just kind of left its um, left the people that it was propping up for 20 years in the cold. Um, and then you're watching the, you know, the U.S. really as much as this has maybe emboldened or made NATO feel empowered or um it's also just showing NATO's weakness because they're not intervening, at least not directly, because they don't want to start a third world war. So Ukraine has, in many ways, been abandoned despite all of the weapons being, uh, you know, showered into it. So in a way, you know, if you're a U.S. ally, you're kind of, I think, also watching that maybe the U.S. isn't going to stick by me if, you know, it comes to be our turn. And so mm -hmm. maybe it, it is better to not isolate Russia and to keep our options open about these sort mm -hmm. of big players that we can be allied with, you know. But speaking of, of, of NATO, you know, NATO was this military alliance, I think, in search of a purpose ever since the Soviet Union collapsed. Do you think this war has ironically justified their existence or even empowered this body? And what are the risks of that? I, I think it has. I, I think this is a, a dream for NATO, frankly. It's a paradise because, you know, on the one hand, it, it, it gives them their old enemy. Um, uh, but on the other hand, they're not going to fight. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas, of course, uh, in this search for other purposes, uh, after the Cold War, they found themselves in situations where they did have to fight, and they were very, very bad at it, and their populations refused to to support them. I mean, it's very striking, you know, uh, the, the French, and look, I'm not going to take sides on French behaviour in Africa, um, <laughs> but the, the French have been begging for European and NATO help in, in West Africa for years now. Uh, and the response has been absolutely pathetic because there, of course, you do have to fight. And there also, there are deep moral, or from European point of view, ambiguities about supporting dictatorships and so forth and so on. So, so this in a way is absolutely perfect. It's the purpose for which NATO was created, you know, containing Russia. Uh, but it's, it goes back to the Cold War because mm -hmm. um, other people are doing the dying. You know, yeah. uh, NATO is not going to fight Russia, and barring some uh, horrible accident, Russia is not going to fight NATO. You know, whole, after what's happened in Ukraine, the whole idea of Russia invading NATO, you know, is is a fantasy so absurd it surprises me that even a general could believe in it. Um, <laughs> and um, but for, from NATO, NATO's point of view, it's perfect. And of course, from the European point of view, yes, they have to expand their their militaries, but on the other hand, America is right back in, you know, to pull their chestnuts out of the fire. So yes, I mean, after 30 unhappy years in which they might, you know, in which they were looking for a new role, um, NATO is in the glorious position of having refound its old role. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, I also think there's some consequences, uh, negative, very negative consequences in the West for, from this invasion. And that is, you know, in terms of the militarism and defense budgets of the U.S. and of European countries that are already going up, um, I think that's a very negative consequence. There's also the impact on culture, in a sense. I mean, you see this growing culture of I support for really, I think, uh, disturbing support for censorship, where... Mm -hmm. This idea that we have to, we don't, we we shouldn't even be allowed to like find uh, Russian media to even see what their officials are saying. Um, I think that's a really dangerous mindset to have. I think in a war, we need to be able to hear from all sides, even if we don't agree with them. And if you don't, if you're only hearing from your side, you actually 
start to become diluted by your own side's propaganda. But, mm. but what do you think will be the negative consequences on Europe, America, uh, in terms of their defense budgets and just in terms of the sort of like damage it does to society to, to you know, have this kind of war hysteria? Well, it does remind me in certain respects, you know, I was in, in, in America at the time of 9-11 mm. and, you know, the hysteria that followed that. And of course, the disasters that this this led to. Uh, I think there is a there is a real danger of that. Um, and yes, I mean, the, the, the McCarthyite uh, hysteria and, um, you know, accusations of treason are, are terrible for culture. There's one additional thing that we haven't talked about. Um, you know, my, my last book was actually on climate change. Mm. And as the Secretary General of the United Nations said yesterday, um, you know, this war and this crisis are, are a disaster for action against climate change because, A, climate change has been totally wiped out from all the Western media. Uh, but secondly, of course, there is this mad rush back in, into subsidising domestic fossil fuels, which means, of course, above all, coal for energy right. security and to keep prices low. And... You know, after all this talk of climate change being the existential threat, you know, before this war, um, I was one of a tiny minority of people who was saying, look, in thinking about all this and in thinking about the need for a compromise over Ukraine, we've also got to think about the threat of climate change, you know, which in the long run is a threat to the whole of humanity, which dwarfs what's happening in, in Ukraine. But, uh, you know... Um, there was a, a very cruel remark about a U.S. president in the past that he was so dumb that he couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, it, it, it does seem to me that the U.S. establishment, Europeans as well, to, to a great extent, are incapable of thinking of two things at the same time. <laughs> one, one, one thing, you know, simply seizes their minds, and then yeah. you know it, it, they become obsessed with it, and until something else comes along, you know. Right. And the other issue, too, I mean, I'm glad you I, I was actually going to ask you about the issue of climate change. So I'm glad you got to that. And I just have a couple more things I want to get to here. I know I've taken a lot of your time. But one of the other, I think, consequences of this as well is, you know, many of us, not just on the left, but in general, I think we're skeptical of the U.S. confidence that Russia was going to invade Ukraine on this day at this time. And that was for a reason. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the big lie of the Iraq war. That was like the original sin, right, of the last 20 years. Um, and this, you know, the U.S. being right on Russia invading, the U.S. intelligence being right, seems to have restored a kind of blind faith in U.S. intelligence. I mean, there already was a kind of blind faith of the U of U.S. intelligence, generally speaking. But, you know, there was still that little bit of skepticism people had because of because of the Iraq war. And that seems to be completely gone now. Um, and it's at this point, U.S. intelligence could just say whatever they want. And there would be almost, I think, no voice, at least in the mainstream, really speaking out against it or saying, wait a second, like, let's get evidence first. So I don't there's there's uh, you know, I think we're going to be dealing with the consequences of this for for mm. many years to come on so many levels. But I wanted to, you know, just say that you and some of your colleagues at the Quincy Institutes are a voice, I think, of reason on a lot of issues related to war. I mean, Quincy Institute basically came into being to advocate against endless wars. Um, and then here we are having another one. Um, but, and at this point, you know, a lot of you seem to be drowned out by the, the trumpets of war 
blown by, I think, most every think tank and mainstream media outlet right now. So why do you think it is that you know, these think the think tank world and, and the White House press pool, we've all seen these videos, you know, from the intercept of the White House press pool, just like asking, why aren't you going to war harder? You know, you almost go, you know, start to feel bad for Joe Biden and Jen Psaki. But why do you think the think tank world and the White House press pool is, are, are so passionate about escalating this war? Why is war such a popular option in Washington? And I know there's not like one simple answer to that, but if you had to condense your reasoning for why that is please mm. <laughs> go ahead self-righteousness is a, is is a wonderful emotion yeah um <laughs> one, one of the most powerful and emotionally comforting emotions that there are um, i think the you know the um the, the, the warming impact of self-righteousness uh, has been much neglected, you know, as a psychological um, factor. Uh, you know, it, it's, um, well, I won't get into what it's the equivalent of, but, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I think, you know, people just do become obsessed with these moral, these moral fervors. And then, of course, once, um, uh, which is rarely absent, and humanity in general, but especially in Washington, uh, careers come into it as well. Mm. You know, there, there are obvious career, in, in circumstances of general moral hysteria, there are obvious career advantages to being even more hysterical than everybody else. So you get a, you know, a, a competition there. Um, and, you know, then the fact in the think tanks, but also, uh, you, you know, it, not many, but a few leading journalists have actually, you know, moved into the, um, uh, well, for the journalists, it's access, but also, you know, access and career and sometimes official career as well, if you look at Strobe Talbot. Um, and, um, you, you, I, you know, I worked for a mainstream think tank too, in fact, for, for several years in, in Washington. And the great majority of my American colleagues um, were clearly, I mean, everything that they said and did was tailored uh, to calculating their chances of whether this would help or harm their chances to become chief assistant to the deputy chief assistant dog washer um, <laughs> in the next administration, but two. Uh, and, um, you know, this was, uh, this was really, really critical. And of course, the point is that because of the way that money works in Washington as well, um, this, once you've had an official position, uh, your income from consultancies shoots up. Uh, once you've had a senior uh, official position, your income from consultancies becomes very great indeed. And so there are tremendous, tremendous pressures to conform, not to stand out, you know, to, um, uh, to, to, to go with the crowd or even calculate how to get ahead of the crowd. Uh, and it makes, uh, you know, dissent. Uh, I mean, you know, you, the dissenters are not, you know, are not executed or imprisoned, um, but they are banished to uh, very small magazines. Um, I, 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 I'm one of a, a small minority of people who've written both for The Nation, the left-wing magazine, in, uh, in, and for The National Interest, which is a sort of realist um, magazine. And I always say politically, they only have one thing in common, they neither of them pay anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there you have it. And I guess, you know, lastly, I, I just want to get your take on this. How concerned are you about the prospects for a no-fly zone? Obviously, we've heard uh, officials, of, including Joe Biden himself, say this is absolutely out of the question. But there does seem to be uh, 
a certain, I don't know, segments of the punditry and the, you know, media that are demanding one. And that, that sort of is growing louder. Do you, do you worry that that's a possible scenario that could play out a no fly zone and why or why not? I worry, but I think uh, on the whole, it won't happen um, because uh, it would mean war with Russia. And I think that, you know, uh, the Europeans are not all of them, not the Poles, of course, but the West Europeans are begging America not to do that. And of course, if you really spook to European publics, because they would be in, you know, in the front line in a way that America mm. is not, uh, you might see, you know, the disintegration of the Western alliance and actually pressure from Germany and France. To, to make peace in Ukraine. And then, of course, there is the, you know, the sheer geographical issue. If Germany refuses to participate, it becomes much more difficult. You know, if Germany refuses to allow American planes to fly over Germany, it does actually become logistically quite difficult to, to mount mm. such an operation. But as far as all the, the pressure for it is, is concerned, I think a lot of it uh, is precisely because the people doing the pressuring uh, know that it's not going to happen. And so, yeah. you know, they can present themselves as tough guys and tremendous heroes. And of course, the Republicans can use it against the Biden administration in the serene knowledge that it's never going to happen. But I think, you know, what you will get is uh, bigger supplies of other weapons in consequence, you know, drones, for example. So in other words, by from a Ukrainian point of view, by really pushing this, they can also put pressure on the Biden administration to give them, you know, more of other things. And that's the real intention behind it. Well, Anatole, even I want to thank you for joining me for the hour and giving us your expertise and point of view. Uh, very quickly, where can people follow your analysis on this, on this and other issues? Uh, the um, uh, Quincy Institute web website, quincyinst.org, uh, prints a lot of my stuff. Uh, and um, yeah, that's, that's the best place to find me. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. It was a great pleasure.